Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So, Jay, how many podcasts do you think we did this year? About 150? Oh, more than 150. Imagine if we had to do three a week. How many weeks? Well, that's 150. Yeah, about 150, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but with each one of those, I had to read books. And I was just saying to Amy, who was our guest on this podcast, you have to read more than 150 books. You have to read more than one book by the guest, usually on average. And I read books a lot of books by people who I think might be guests or I might want to have as guests and decide if I want to have them as guests. So I, I read so much for this podcast. And then after a podcast is done, I'm usually tired. I love watching TV. So I, I binge watch shows with Robin and watch YouTube videos and do other things, of course, play chess, watch comedy all the time. So I have all of these recommendations that I am happy to share. I didn't want to make it overwhelming. So I picked like, 10 things to recommend. It's not by any means all of my recommendations, but it's 10 of them. And we invited Amy Morin on. Amy has been on the podcast quite a bit. She wrote 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do and a lot of other books in that category. And so we each share our recommendations for this coming year based on what we enjoyed this past year. So I hope you guys enjoy and feel free to share on Twitter your recommendations and let us know, tag us. But also, if you love this episode, or even if you just mildly like this episode, heck, even if you hate this episode, please subscribe because it helps me so much and it gives me hope for the future to keep continuing and doing this podcast, knowing that people are enjoying it and subscribing to it. So let me know. And thanks again for listening to this one. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Amy, how are you doing? I haven't spoken to you probably in like at least a year. I know. It's been a long time. I'm doing great. How are you? How's Atlanta? Good. Atlanta's great. It's, it's, it's really quiet here compared to everywhere else I've ever lived. Yeah. But you live on a boat. Yeah. So. so it's really quiet on a boat. It's usually pretty quiet here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have you been up to? I don't remember when it was we spoke last, but I took on the role of editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind, which I said a long time ago, like, I'm never going to take on a nine-to-five job, but here I am. And uh -huh. we joined forces with my podcast, so I changed my, what used to be the Mentally Strong People podcast is now the Very Well Mind podcast. And I have a workbook coming out in February, and then I have a couples book coming out next December. Oh, that's good. Do workbooks yes. do well? 
Yeah, you know, it was one of those, so many people who've read my first book, like, wanted more, but yet I could only do so much coaching or so many hours of trying to help people. So we said, let's do a workbook. Um, so I'm excited for that one to come out. And then the couple's book I'm just writing now and it's supposed to come out next year. The couple's book's going to be huge. That'll be a huge one. 12 mentally, or 12 things mentally strong couples don't do, or what yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. 13 things mentally strong couples don't do. So it seems like the next the next step in the series just it seemed to make sense to write one about couples. That's good. So what are what are some of the things mentally strong couples don't do? Now, I think some of the bigger ones would be like that they don't use their emotions as weapons because we talk so much about, uh, you know, like you should talk about your feelings. But what I'm seeing people do is be like, well, we can't talk about that relationship problem we have because it's too upsetting for me. So I don't feel safe in this conversation. But really, they just don't want to talk about it. Or when somebody has an anger problem, they're really quick to be like, well, you know, you know, I lose my temper, so I'm just going to walk away. But really, they just don't want to have that conversation. So I'm seeing a lot of that. Whereas we talk so much about feelings these days, people are like, I'm going to actually use my feelings or I'm going to project my feelings in a way that makes it that I don't actually have to talk about the tough stuff or I don't have to change my behavior. It becomes more like an excuse. Well, who's that that couple, the, the Gutmans? They, they can tell at just a glance if a couple is going to stay together or not. Right. Supposedly they can, yeah, within so many seconds just by looking at their conversations or the way that they deal with things or how they relate to their story of how they met. Just a couple of quick key indicators and with a certain success rate, they can say if you're going to get divorced or not. And what what, are, what do you think are some of the things they look at? Well, it comes to like people sharing their story. It's like somebody says, hey, how did you and your spouse meet? And somebody says, oh, math class, or we met on the internet. It's not a very good indicator that they're going to stay together forever. But if they tell a story of like, oh, the first time I saw her, she was beautiful. And they get into details about what they like about the person. That's a sign that they're probably going to stay together. Oh, that's good. Strangely, right? And then another one is uh, just in the way that they handle conflict, whether, you know, the one person gets annoyed and the other person shuts down uh, quickly, or if they can talk about it versus problem solving together. The couples that can tackle a problem together obviously stay together much longer than the one who, the couples who immediately call each other names and walk away. It's uh, good too. Uh, all right. Well, I think this podcast is basically our recommendations. I've been thinking about all the things that I've enjoyed this past year that I would recommend to people in addition to, of course, all of your books. And so the whole thing is, Amy, I haven't spoken to you in a year. And what have you been watching, reading, doing? What have you been enjoying? Oh, good question. So uh, books, lots of books. So I know, you know, Ryan Holiday, I love his his latest book about discipline is destiny. That was a good one. It's so funny because he, that, that book also was, on, I made a list of just 10 things and, but I obviously have, there's more, but that's number two on my list. Really? I didn't know yeah. that, but obviously, I mean, it was a really good book and I had him on my podcast too. And discipline isn't something that I would say probably you or I tend to struggle with in a lot of ways, but there are other ways in my life where I was like, okay, cause I tend to look at discipline sometimes as like something I, I don't really want, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like a negative. Like, right. Like, oh, you were, you were a bad person, so now you have to be disciplined. Right. And so I really wanted, after I read the book, I really wanted him on my podcast because I had some questions for him. I was like, yeah, but I didn't want to go to bed early. Does that, is that bad? Like, would I be a better person if I went to sleep early? Because I find that to be one of the greatest joys in life. And the other thing we were talking about is... um 
oh, like dress code, because he's all about you should dress for success. And I was like, no, I moved to a boat in the Florida Keys, so I don't have to wear anything fancy. And so for I was grateful that he then agreed, like, no, if, if it's important to you in life to stay up as late as you want, then you go ahead and do that. Or if it's important to you to walk around in flip-flops, like, that's okay. You can go ahead and do that. So I got some relief from actually bringing him on the show and talking to him. And that was something I learned from you, too, because you've had a podcast a lot longer than I have. But like that's one of the cool things about being a podcast host. You can read a book and then invite the person on your show and have a conversation with them. You can read something and then get more clarity on it. I, I like I really like this one story that Ryan and I talk, spoke about on my podcast had an impact on me, which is that he I'm gonna I'm gonna exaggerate a little what was discussed. He basically said Babe Ruth was not a good baseball player. And you know, for those listening of who know baseball, uh, Babe Ruth was like for, for 50 years or, or 40 years, he had the record of most home runs. He had like over 700 home runs. So he was considered this incredible hitter and famous as the best baseball player ever. And so I was like, how can you say that? And he said that because he spent so much time, you know, gambling, womanizing, he didn't really have a healthy lifestyle. He didn't really have reverence for the game that he was so great at. So we don't really know how great he could have been, that he actually, it was a subtraction for the net beauty of baseball that Babe Ruth wasn't the best baseball player he could have been because he didn't have reverence for the game. He didn't have discipline for the game. And so we missed out on how good he could have been. That was one of the things I was curious about too, because in his book, he talks about the difference between Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. And Lou Gehrig had this super disciplined life and wouldn't go out and party and he ate really well and he took care of himself. And then Babe Ruth was the absolute opposite, but yet they were both performing really well. So I, that was my question. Like, well, don't people, wouldn't they say, well, at least Babe Ruth had a lot more fun along the way? To which his answer was like, no, he ate all these hot dogs. He couldn't control his appetite so much that he would end up in the ER because he would overdose on hot dogs and soda and <laughs> make himself sick. So he's like, he actually wasn't having fun, but sort of our definition of fun from the outside is, yeah, but he didn't follow any of the rules. He did it as he pleased. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's like a weird, I think like his point is always, and this is like a stoic point is that hedonism is not necessarily fun. Right. Like just seeking pleasure is not necessarily the path to well-being. And the discussion had an impact on me in that the things that I'm pursuing or trying to get better at I kind of did a double check. Do I have reverence for this? Am I approaching him with the right discipline so that I could actually have more fun doing it instead of doing things in a haphazard way and not enjoying as much and so on? Yeah, I think so. And in hearing him just talk about, all right, maybe although we don't like discipline in the moment, that is the key to a better life. Obviously, it's something I talk about as a therapist. We don't want just immediate gratification all the time. If you want to reach your your bigger goals, you have to say no to stuff. But uh, we also don't want to live on the other side of that because I think sometimes in many ways I could be too self-disciplined that I would opt to to work instead of go do something fun. So it's about finding that balance. Like like you and I are both writers and imagine if, and I've seen people do this. I've, I've seen people like for their whole lives want to be writers and never write a book. But because they would write one day and then the next day they'd go to a party or the next day they'd go out to dinner or the next day they would just watch TV and be too lazy to to write, or or they'd get writer's block or whatever. 
And so ultimately they're having fun, maybe going to all these parties or watching TV or whatever, but they're not going to write a book, which ultimately would give them a lot of personal satisfaction, you know, regardless of how the book sold, it give them a lot of personal satisfaction that they achieved something. Right. And there's days that writing is not fun, right? <laughs> there are days where it's... Writing is never... If you think about it, writing is never fun. I mean, sometimes it's fun mentally, like, oh, I feel good about this way I approach something and I accomplish something. But just the act of sitting down and typing keys is not a very... It, we didn't evolve to do that. Like humans aren't supposed to do that. And so it's not really a fun physical activity. Right. And these days, because I'm writing a book and it's kind of in my spare time, like a lot of my weekends go towards writing a book. It is not the most fun thing to do on a Saturday night is to sit behind my laptop in chapter seven. A lot of things I'd rather be doing, but because I want a book to come out again, I choose to do it for a little while. No. So, so, so yeah, I agree that book. And also I feel like I always love Robert Greene as an author. So, you know, he's the author of 48 Laws of Power, Mastery, The Laws of Human Nature. And Ryan uh, had been his mentee. And Ro Robert Greene has this really amazing way of, he knows, he has so much knowledge and does so much research. So he, he tells constant stories from all over history to make his points. And Ryan has a really good way of kind of emulating that style, maybe less intense because Robert Greene has so many stories in each chapter. Um, but, but Ryan has done a good job of, of really kind of mastering that style of weaving in, you know, historical stories with the points he's trying to make. And so his books are enjoyable. Definitely. What about, uh, another book or, or anything? What's another thing that you enjoy? We'll, we'll take turns. Um, let's see. I guess another book I would say, uh, and I, you had her on your podcast as well, but Edith Eager's book, The Gift. Oh yeah. I was just looking at that book. It's on my bookshelf behind me. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that book. I mean, obviously not a, a uplifting topic, but what a, a remarkable woman who was a survivor of Auschwitz, but is now a psychologist and explains, you know, how do you, how do you turn a terrible situation is something good and she makes it clear like don't compare your situation to mine and be like well mine wasn't as bad she doesn't want her readers to do that but instead just says here's how you keep a positive attitude no matter what you're going through in life but does it in a way that wasn't just um i don't know cliche but she does it in a really i thought in a really helpful way do you remember specifically how i, I kind of forget what what she was on the podcast and i remember being super inspired afterwards and after right I, you know like one of her like slogans was like, you can't heal what you don't feel. But she talks about that, that it's okay to have all of those feelings and and to allow yourself to experience them. And I also loved when she told the story of how just somewhat recently, because she and her sister were both in Auschwitz and they were talking about whether or not to go back and visit it now. And she decided, yeah, I'm going to go back and I'm going to, and that will be healing to me. And her sister was like, no way. Why would you ever want to go there? And, and her sister chose not to, but they respected each other's decisions in terms of knowing, okay, there's more than one way to heal. There's not one right answer. Cause you might go, even if you go see a therapist, they might be like, no, you have to face this thing from your past. Well, not everybody has to do that. And not everybody has the opportunity to, and might not be healing for everybody. So it was just, for me, it was just a really great story of, how how we heal from stuff, but how everybody heals a little bit differently. Yeah, that's it. I, I and what did you what do you think you learned as a therapist? Because you're you know you're a psychologist. Yeah, I think I learned um, 
just how resilient we can be, but how how often we just really, I think she was a great example of how we don't really want to heal. We just want to go on with our lives. And sometimes other people cheer us on because we look like we're okay from the outside. And somebody that's been through something horrific, like they still have a job and they still have a relationship and they smile sometimes. So we're like, oh, you're so strong. And we don't really know what they're dealing with on the inside. And like she said, for years, she pretended like she was okay, but then she was kind of bitter and angry and irritable. And it wasn't until decades later that she went back to get her degree in psychology. And that just reminded her of, yeah, I actually haven't healed. I just wished I had. And I was kind of acting as though I had. I wonder if she did think that or if by that point she had already moved past the anger and bitterness because she was doing something. So she was doing something she loved, which was getting a degree in psychology. And that is what healed as opposed to kind of this awareness that uh, she hadn't, you you know, like you said, she she realized she hadn't really gotten over the bitterness and the anger that kind of came after the healing and the healing itself was taking action and doing something she loved. Yeah. I think that's really a good point because when we do take action, we know the change your behavior first and the feelings follow. So when you say, I'm going to go out there and do something and you start doing it, then often you start to feel better. And I guess probably just knowing, oh, I I can still do this and I can help other people and I'm not damaged goods. Because when we treat ourselves like, oh, I went through something awful and I'm too damaged to, to be productive or to have meaning in life, we start to act that way. And then when you act that way, you don't actually function and help people and the worse you feel. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think that you... I think you can't think your way out of a problem. I think you have to like act your way out of a problem. Yeah. And I'm always reminded I had a sprained ankle once and surfing injury and sprained my ankle bad enough that the doctor said, I think it's broken, but it's so swollen. We can't tell if it's broken or not. So go home and rest, come back in like a week and we'll do another round of x-rays. And by then we'll be able to tell if it's actually broken. So I went home thinking I had a broken ankle. So I didn't move for like the entire week. I was just waiting to go get more x-rays because I didn't want to mess anything up. And like a week later, she's like, it's still too swollen to tell. We don't know what we're going to do. But by then it had swelled so much that it was really painful and I couldn't move. Like when I would get up off the couch, even with crutches, like it just hurt too much. So they sent me to a physical therapist who looked at it for three seconds and was like, your leg's not broken, Amy. It's just, it's just sprained and you're making it worse by not walking or moving it. And like within a day, I could walk on it and I was fine. It still hurt a little bit, but it wasn't anything like it was. But it was one of those reminders of like, I treated myself like I had a broken leg. And the longer I did that, the worse I felt and the worse I made it. And we do that with our emotions too. When we have a, when we think, God, I went through something awful and now I'm damaged or I'm not strong enough to handle this or that. So then we treat ourselves like we're fragile. We actually become fragile and make it worse. Yeah, like um, I, I had a, a similar experience when I had COVID a few months ago. And at first I assu- I didn't get myself tested at first. I assumed I had COVID. So I'm like, got a fever, I'm shivering, I'm in pain, I'm under the covers. And then I took a COVID test and it was negative. I didn't have COVID. And so I was like, oh, I don't have COVID. So then I just walked around the house. I announced to everyone, I don't have COVID. I was watching TV. I was, you know, hanging out, I, I was like, yeah, why didn't even, I don't, not even sick. I don't, why did I even think I had COVID? And then I took a test an hour later and I was positive for COVID. Like I had done the test wrong the first time. And so then I 
realized I had COVID, but I refused to have the symptoms again. So I just did not let myself have the symptoms again. And I don't think it's always that easy with COVID, but right. it does show the strength of the mind in these things. It really is quite powerful. And what we think about tends to, I don't know, kind of come true. And they say that with lots of physical things, that when we assume the worst, then we feel the worst. And then the worse we feel, the less we do. And the less we do, the worse we feel again. It's this vicious cycle. I think people underestimate the importance of mindset. Like, and this is really true for like sports or competitive activities as well. Like, right. I don't know what statistics are done on this. I just think mindset plays a really important role for any kind of performance related thing, like whether it's public speaking or sports or games or whatever. Yeah, there's studies on that. And I don't know the exact statistic either, but like if a professional football player steps out on the field and thinks, gee, I hope I don't lose today, they're going to perform much differently than if they step out there and say, we're going to win today. And we know that like about an elite athlete, yeah, they're there to, to win or they're there to do their best. But when it comes to us, we often don't do that. Like when you step on a stage for a public speech, you think, oh, hope I don't embarrass myself. And you like just want to avoid being the worst or people in sales are like, I don't just don't want to have the worst sales in my division this month. Like, no, if you if you aim much higher, you'll perform much better. But yet sometimes we just do that. We just want to have the worst or to embarrass ourselves or just don't want to fail completely. We let ourselves off the hook, but it does make a huge difference. Or we tell this narrative that, oh, I'm a loser and here I am losing again. And, uh, you know, somehow we, we get something from that narrative. Although, you know, I don't know why we would get something from that, but somehow we do. It's like, it's an easy excuse. I'm losing this because I'm a loser. And so it kind of def- helps us define what's happening. Uh, as opposed to saying I'm playing, uh, uh, let's say like with a game of chess, instead of saying I'm playing poorly right now and I need to do something right now, it kind of is almost easier to say, well, I'm just a loser in general. So that's why I'm losing. Right. So I, have, so I don't have to put in any more effort in this game. Exactly. Because I'm already a loser. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Those labels so, we put on ourselves like loser <laughs> can make a huge difference. Like I had, I had a game, this is just a few weeks ago in a tournament. I had a game where some, something unexpected happened in the beginning and I thought I was losing and I did start to get despondent. And when I later looked at the game on the computer, it turned out I wasn't losing at all. It was, it was, the computer thought it was dead even, but I thought I was losing. So I started making moves that actually were bad moves. And then I was losing. And once I was losing, I figured, well, I'm losing. So now I should just try to, you know, fight my best and have some counterplay. So I had a little bit of a counterplay and I got a little bit more optimistic. And even though at that point, the computer thought I was losing, because the trend was going in my favor, I started to feel like I was winning. And then I did win. Interesting. It was totally like a mindset game. The entire game was defined by the mindset. Isn't that cool, though? How, <laughs> And, you know, you can see it when you watch like a, a sporting event, how, you know, morale shifts or something happens or they go on a streak where they're making lots of baskets. It just continues because it's like contagious. We know emotions are contagious. So when somebody's excited and they're on your team, then you get excited and you perform better. But... Yeah, our emotions play a huge role the way we think, whether we think we're winning or we're losing. Great example. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And 
I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, okay, what's another thing that you recommend? Book, TV, activity, restaurant? Uh, you know, I'm going to name mostly books because if you'll recall, I've seen like 12 movies in my life. <laughs> So I don't have any movie recommendations I can offer. Wait, you don't like you don't binge watch Netflix or anything? Yeah, no. And not cuz oh I'm like a, like I'm not against it or anything, but um we had a I was on your podcast once we were talking about this cuz 
we would always talk about like movie references or something. I don't know any of them. <laughs> like just pop culture yeah. and movies and TV shows are not my not my area of expertise. I love good television. I know, and you guys are always telling me about like I don't know, like one of the first times I met you, you were like, "Oh, curb your enthusiasm," and I was like, "Hmm." <laughs> Have you since watched it? I've seen parts of it, and I'm like, I get why it's funny now. Yes. All right. <laughs> as long as you've seen parts of it. Right. And so you'll have to you'll have to give me the TV and, and movie recommendations. All right. um, if I were to pick another book, um, I might say There Is No Good Card for This. And it's written by a psychologist named Kelsey Crow. And, you know, I'm a therapist, and obviously I went through all of these things in my life. I lost my mom, lost my husband, lost my father-in-law. And yet when somebody tells me, like, that, they've lost a loved one. I'm like, I really don't know what to say. So I just say like, I'm really sorry. I'm a therapist and I, I know about this stuff. So you'd think I'd have something more intelligent to say, but that's all I got for you because I don't have the right words. So I found this book and I was like, I'm excited to read it because I want to know what do you say to somebody? And there's always those awkward situations too. It's not just about when somebody loses someone, but maybe somebody tells you their spouse was just diagnosed with cancer or somebody loses their job. And just seeing like, gee, I'm sorry to hear that doesn't always sound like quite the right words. Or when somebody says, hey, I was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, you're supposed to say something hopeful or maybe they think they're doing well. And if you say, I'm sorry, it makes it sound like it isn't. So this book gives you lots of ideas. And one of the things I found probably most helpful is to just say to somebody, how are you doing now? And there's something about just adding the word now on the end of it that you can make make it clear, like, I know what you're going through, or I understand you're going through something, but like, instead of just how are you, because people will say good or fine or something like that. But when you say, how are you doing now? It kind of opens the door. So if somebody wants to talk about it, they can, but they might also just say, good, how are you? And that's your sign of, all right, maybe they don't want to talk about it. And she talks a lot about empathy and gives you scripts of just simple stuff to say to people or nice things to do for them. What if, like, what if you're seeing a patient and they say, oh, my wife was just diagnosed with whatever, or my husband or, or whoever, or my kid, and they want a solution. And do you, don't you feel a little bit like you're disappointing them if you say, oh, I don't know what to say? Um, well, yes. And I guess when I say I don't know what to say, to be clear, that'll be somebody in my personal life. If somebody in my therapy office, I'm like, oh, we've got this. Let's figure this out. And and I feel much more comfortable. So depending on who it is, if I know them a little bit, I'll know whether they want to like fix the problem or fix how they feel about the problem. Some people are going to be like in that position where if they know somebody was diagnosed with an illness, their job is going to be the one to be like, I'm going to research this. So I'm going to find you the world's best doctor. I'm going to do all of this stuff. And I know that that's the role they're going to take. Other people are just going to be like, well, this is the hand we were dealt. And if that's, or they might not feel like they're in a position to do anything. So they're just going to want to deal with their feelings. So then we know, okay, how do you tackle this? What are you going to do to take care of yourself? How do you deal with the anxiety or the sadness or maybe the anticipatory grief? And we tackle it from that angle. And then I have other people who are just kind of stuck. Like, I'm not sure what angle to tackle this from. And we might talk about the pros and cons of how to tackle it. All right. So... I'm gonna I'm gonna read that book. I I, I think I need that book right now. <laughs> uh, I have a, a some book recommendations soon. We'll we'll get to other th- recommendations other than books. But there's three books. One of them I'm two of them I'm currently reading right now. But one of them I've read. First one is um, it's called Government Cheese by Stephen Pressfield. And so Stephen Pressfield wrote The War of Art. He wrote the novel The Legend of Bagger Vance, which became a, a great movie as well. 
Um, he's written lots of books about writing and and resistance, like the, the fact that artists often feel resistance when they do art and they have to get overcome that. And so Government Cheese is his memoir and his whole, like, where did he get all these insights into writing and and all these amazing stories he's had writing from from writing novels that didn't work out to screenplays to even porn movies. And uh, it's a great memoir. And so I, I don't know if you know, Stephen, he's been on the podcast a bunch of times, but he's a, he's a really good writer. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know of him and I know a little bit about his work, but it sounds like an interesting book. And then uh, two other ones, uh, James Patterson just came out with a memoir of his writing career. And, you know, James Patterson's written all these thrillers. I've read some of them and they're very good. They're very page turning thrillers. And he wrote a memoir of his writing career. And I didn't know this. He was like the CEO of J. Walter Thompson. He was, he was an ad guy. And on the side, he was writing novels until just the novels became bigger than anything he was doing for his career. And he was the CEO of a major ad agency. And that's how he became, you know, a novelist. I had no idea. And he writes, I don't know how he writes so many books and he writes them so fast and he keeps, you know, his character straight and <laughs> does such an yeah. amazing job of keeping them interesting. Yeah. And then and then there's a third memoir of a novelist that just came out. Haruki Murakami is writing about how he became a novelist. And he's probably like on the short list for the Nobel Prize in fiction. And, you know, great novelist, very literary, kind of borders on literary slash science fiction sometimes. But he writes about his kind of start and he like had a jazz cafe, but in his spare time, he would write like in the mornings before the cafe opened up. And it's just very interesting to see all these different perspectives on how different people became different types of writers. Yeah, I always think that's interesting too. And people had a former life where they sort of just write a little bit here and there versus people who... I think, set out to become a writer. And then they're like, yeah, but I don't have anything to write about because I didn't have a, a life before writing or a life outside of writing. Yeah. So I, I always enjoy like memoirs of writers, like even A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway, which was his sort of memoir of writing he wrote in 1957. I always really enjoy uh, memoirs of writers. That's it for me and books. I mean, I could recommend other books, but I kind of just limited it to those. Oh, no, I had one more book recommendation, which is a novel, which... This is an old book, but I just read it this past few months. And it's a, a genre novel, the, the Long Walk by Stephen King. You ever read any? It's the only novel I've ever read by Stephen King. No. And, you know, strangely, like he was practically my neighbor when I lived in Maine. And uh, I don't think I've, I don't know that I've read any of his books. <laughs> Some of his books are like so thick. They're like cubes. They're like 700 pages. It's just like one big cube of paper. So this one is like a relatively small 300 pages. And the premise is, you don't really understand why this is happening in the beginning, but the premise is a bunch of kids are selected to walk. And any kid who slows down or stops walking is killed. And it's a contest to see who walks the longest. And the whole novel is this one contest and it's this one year, these kids walking. And it's kind of all the interactions of these kids plus the kind of macro drama of why is this even happening? Interesting. Well, now I'm intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, and, and it's really like a creative idea. He's actually got a strong literary voice. It's not like everybody always says, oh, he's a genre horror writer, which I think is kind of real sort of elitism about, you know, literary versus genre. Like it's a very well thought out 
novel with like great ideas in it. And he's able to take a simple premise and make a page riveting 300 page fiction about it. Not easy to do. So impressive. Yeah. Are there any, uh, do, do, I, I haven't read many novels lately for some reason, maybe because of all the great TV that's out there and YouTube videos and other things, but like, do you have any uh, novels that that you like? It's been a minute, I think, since I've read a novel, too. I end up in the nonfiction world just because I'm researching podcast guests and because I'm doing research for my own future books. So um, it's been a while since I've read a good novel, too. <laughs> That's a problem with doing a podcast, by the way. Like, I do three episodes a week, and I'm constantly just reading, reading, reading all guests and potential guests because right. I'm not going to have a guest on if I don't like their book. Right. So it's just like nonstop. And it's hard to sometimes take the time to like read a novel. Yeah, exactly. And I find it's it's good because it keeps me reading because I'm always researching podcast guests. But yes, and it interferes with the ability to then find a book that you want to read just absolutely for fun and knowing you'll never have that person as a guest. <laughs> and and I, I also have a problem like listening to podcasts actually because I do a podcast three times a week. It's That's all the listening of podcasts I can handle. So I don't really like listen to a lot of podcasts. I do, and I listen, um, but like while I'm at the gym or um, when I'm in the car, I tend to listen to listen to a lot of podcasts. That's the only time people listen. That's why during the pandemic, in general, podcast numbers went down. Right, because every Cause, and because other people would say that to me, like, "Oh, it must be going up now that everybody's from home." And like, no, nobody's really listening to the podcast while they're working from home. They just tend to do it while they're doing something else, like exercising or commuting. Yeah. Yeah, or taking a walk or whatever, but they have to leave the house to listen to a podcast, basically. Right, right. Uh, I have some TV show recommendations, but you probably don't have any. I just I want to hear yours for sure. <laughs> so so uh, one is, it's called, I think you would like this one. It's called Yellowstone. Okay, I've heard of it. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, it's basically about this ranch in Montana, and it's a by ranch, it's like a big ranch. Like they, you know, I guess deal with cows and horses and all that kind of stuff and grow things. And Kevin Costner is the main guy. He's kind of like the patriarch of this family that owns this ranch and their whole, and there's all this drama because the native Americans that near there, you know, are always are, there's a tension because the ranch was once their land and the government, there's a tension because they want to develop the land instead of just having it, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres just exist rather than, you know, develop airports and things like that. And so there's all these different tensions and also the ranch loses money. So, and, and the family itself has all the typical problems of a TV dramatic family. So it's, it's very, it's very well written. The, the, the writer, he, he, there's now a prequel called 1883. Like how did they get to this land? And then there's another people coming out, which has, which is going to star Harrison Ford called 1929, which is, takes place in between 1883 and Yellowstone. So it's, it's very popular. I know, I guess that's why I've heard about it. <laughs> I've heard about it a lot of places, but never seen an episode. But all right, if you recommend it, I promise I'll put it on my list. My, my wife was at a party and someone told her, uh, oh, it's a, there's a weird statistic where people who are Republican tend to like Yellowstone and people who are Democrat tend to like Game of Thrones. And she was kind of insulted by this because she's neither party, but Yellowstone is all about actually this guy who wants to protect the environment and not let land developers all over the place and build airports and all this kind of stuff. And Game of Thrones 
has an incredible amount of violence and, you know, very, you know, not pleasant situations. And uh, so it's funny that one's associated with blue states, apparently, and the other is associated with red states. That is interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. So then another, uh, so this one's a comedy that I recommend. It's five seasons and the last season just happened. And it's a TV show. It's called Atlanta. And obviously it takes place, mostly it takes place in Atlanta. Some seasons don't take place in Atlanta, but it's by Donald Glover. He's a musician also, and he's also been a, a comedian. And he's been a writer for Jon Stewart. He's an incredible artist. And he created this show Atlanta, which he stars in and he writes and he directs. And it's an amazingly creative and funny show. Sounds good too. Yeah. I, you know, TV is interesting because it allows you to, you know, just, I guess, as opposed to movies, which have these like $200 million budgets, TV allows you to test relatively cheaply, cheaply by media standards, you know, creative ideas. And I think the best TV shows now are, are so much more creative than they ever were before. I and think so, so many choices. Right. And I think now that we right now that we have all these choices. And so Nick and I will talk about that where we talk about putting somebody on our podcast and you know, the options are like even somebody that's a megastar, some people are like, I've never heard of them because we don't have like network TV. Whereas back in the day we all watched the same TV shows. But now that you can watch a show on Netflix or Hulu or whatever you choose to stream it on, there's so many different options that sometimes it's hard to pick which one. I think sometimes that's my problem why I don't watch a lot of shows. I'm overwhelmed by what to pick. So glad you're offering suggestions. Yeah, no, it's the same with me. I mean, there's like thousands of shows out there. How do you know? There's a couple of sources. One is I always look for good sitcoms that star uh, comedians that I like, because then I have a feeling, and if I've heard something good about it, I have a feeling it's good. Then there's, I'm going to use a, a, a curse word, but there's for movies, there's if you search for the mindfuck movie list, there's various mindfuck movie lists where it's the list is filled with movies that are just really uh they're good movies, but they also are like twisted in some way. Oh, and okay. I, I find those to be like so there's a movie I would recommend, Coherence, which I can't possibly describe. You would just have to see it to, but it's totally a mindfuck movie. And it's uh, it's really beautifully done. Intr so. oh, obviously, as a therapist, I'm super intrigued by anything that has to do with society and the mind and things that surprise us. So um, I'll have to check out. Yeah, that this list is too. this would be really interesting from a therapist's point of view too. But again, it's not it's not like a normal movie. It's uh, <laughs> it's it, it's a really interesting story. But um, uh, yeah, those were my main recommendations on on TV and movies. What about you? What else? What have you? What, what new activities have you been doing? Um, let's see. For new ones, I guess. <laughs> I obviously I live on a sailboat, I jet ski a lot. Love to do anything that has to do with being on the water. But something new that I added to the list was I got a GoPro camera, so I can do stuff underwater, which is like another universe. So, uh, in addition to just keeping up with the old, my newest hobby is kind of like underwater pictures. I don't dive or anything. I can snorkel, but I can go underwater and there's something about being able to see a manatee or a dolphin or a underwater sea creature, potentially a shark from a different angle. It's kind of cool. How deep do you go underwater though if you don't dive not, or snorkel? I don't go super deep because also my, my ears start to bother me if I go way down. So I'm not one of those, like some of, I know some people do this free diving where they go way down and just hold their breath. So I'm not into that either. So I don't go down very deep, but luckily in the Florida Keys, 
The water's not deep in a lot of places. We have coral reefs that are just a few a few feet down, and the water's crystal clear, so you can see forever. And if you take a photograph of a shark, aren't you worried the shark's going to bite you? You know, we do have the occasional shark bite down here, but luckily, <laughs> and I've seen sharks, but like for the most part, um, they're usually small. They're usually not aggressive. Um, every once in a while, they are. But again, if you look at the statistics, your chances of being bit, bitten by a shark are pretty low compared to all the other dangers you face in life. You know, you know. I'm going to make one suggestion. You, you, you do the GoPro camera underwater. You should also get a drone and play around with uh, GoPro or whatever cameras in the drone, uh, like aerial photography using a drone. I agree. I think that would be super cool to do. And I have just a, a small, cheap drone that I was playing with. It's not one you'd want to put, you know, up in the air on a windy day. But um, yeah, I think that would be fun. There's a whole genre on YouTube of like crazy drone drones doing all this aerial tricks and videotaping it and, uh, you know, from the drone's point of view. And it's really fascinating. You know, when I see those videos, I'm always like, that's amazing how they do it. And I know, obviously, it's just a matter of getting, like, I'm capable of learning how to do it. So it's just a matter of figuring out what equipment I need or what the best thing is and then investing in doing it. Because I think it'd be a lot of fun. And I spend all this time on the ocean. I might as well do something with it. Yeah, you could probably really get real amazing stuff there. And, you know, that's the other thing, though. Like YouTube and TikTok uh, even, they've created these genres of art that never existed before. Like, like for instance, drone photography or drone videos. There's like hundreds of these uploaded or thousands uploaded. And you can really see, oh, this one's really beautiful. This one's not so much. And you can get, you can absorb an afternoon just watching these things and appreciating the, the artistry of it. Right. Things that, yeah, I would have never dreamed possible, you know, a decade ago. And now I'm like, not only can I, can I see this stuff, but I can also make that footage, which is super cool. Do you, do you use uh, TikTok at all? Um, no, I've seen TikTok. I have a TikTok account, but I've never posted anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really post, but I watch TikTok videos. There are some amazingly talented people on TikTok, like just in any category, like you know, parkour is this, you know, climbing walls and jumping from building to building. And I watch these TikTok videos. It's like these kids are superheroes on TikTok. I don't know how they do these things. And and I, I, I've started to really appreciate like good quality TikTok videos because you see people who are so talented at something, or here's like one genre of TikTok video or YouTube video, you know, so-and-so looks homeless and sits down at a piano in a restaurant. And this is what happens next. And they play some like amazing song, like or amazing combination of genres. Like they'll play Dr. Dre, but but done in this really classical Mozart style. And uh, it's it's fascinating to see these subgenres created on YouTube and TikTok. Right, and it gives us an opportunity to turn you know something into a talent that wouldn't have been a talent years ago. And yeah, obviously there's pros and cons to social media, but uh, it's definitely one of the potential pros of it. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise. 
dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. One thing I've been thinking of lately is just that, you know, everybody says, oh, TikTok or Twitter, everyone argues about politics, so it's no fun. And I agree, like arguing about politics is no fun. But then people who are really into politics say, no, we, these are issues we have to deal with. And so we have to discuss them and we have to argue with them and convince people to be right instead of wrong. But I, I really have been kind of, anytime someone brings up a political issue with me now, I sort of think to myself, is it, better for me to talk about this issue or is it better for the world if I'm just with somebody I like and not think about politics at all? And I think if everybody thought like that, like just, oh, I just want to be around people I enjoy being with as opposed to talking, arguing about politics, just think in general, that would be a better way to live and, and for the world itself. 
I think so too. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, what are our goals in life to get along with people? Because, you know, we just had Thanksgiving and I heard from so many people that were like, you know, my uncle's going to bring up something political and then the family's going to get into a fight. And you think, well, is that really one of how you spend your holiday? Or can you just, even if you don't agree with somebody's opinion, you don't necessarily have to argue with them. Like, oh, interesting idea. Let's move on. <laughs> but to just yeah. make it more about the relationship rather than trying to be right or to prove somebody else wrong in these political conversations certainly gets so heated. Oh, and you know, there was one thing that you said earlier. You were talking about how when you're picking guests for your podcast and someone might be really famous because they're on some well-known TV show, but you've never heard of them. I, I've been debating a lot this issue of like, you know, what does what's the importance of fame? Like sometimes I ask people who are in their 80s, are you still as driven to be famous as you once were? And often their answer is yes. And it seems to me that leads to a very unhappy life because I read a quote recently. Somebody said, basically three years after you die, nobody knows who you are. Wow. Like you, no matter how famous you were, like, you know, if I asked somebody who was the president in 1927, chances are like they'd have to think about it if they even know the answer at all. Right. And like that's someone who was president of the United States of America uh, during the roaring 20s, a famous decade for America. Chances are most people don't know who was, who was president then. And, you know, and that's the president. Everybody else, forget about like, you know, such and such writer from 1927 or even from 1987. If I list you the, the best-selling writers of 1987, probably haven't heard of any of them. And so just the nature of fame, like we pursue it so much and yet it's completely meaningless, particularly after you die. That's interesting, isn't it? And even in like, you know, today's world where people are famous, you know, for being on TikTok or something like that, uh, yeah, uh, well, their videos might live on, but people probably aren't going to be watching them in a few years for the most part. Oh, that's... I mean, I probably watched some videos that have had billions of views and I have no idea who the people are. Right. And I, and I wouldn't recognize them in the street. Right. Interesting. But like also, every decade, the nature of, of fame changes. Like, like think about when you wrote your first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Like that was a best-selling book. You were everywhere. You are everywhere from it. You were writing more books in the in the franchise. And that's a kind of fame, right? You felt yep. famous and, and probably still do. And yet... You know, even that was a different time where self self help or self help ish writers had a certain degree of fame. Then they don't really do now. Right, right, and right. The reason I got to write a book so I wrote an article that went viral. I don't think an article would go viral these days. It doesn't get shared on social media as much because now people are sharing much more likely to share a funny reel or a TikTok video. We don't really share articles from the internet that are a thousand words long because the nature of these things has changed. Yeah, if anything, we might share like a chart. Like instead of sharing a video, an article, I might share a chart. Right. Like here are the 12 bullets of mentally strong. And then and charts don't, you know, they'll go viral, but you won't bond with them emotionally as you would a book, for right. instance. Right, and no, yeah, nobody would remember who I was. So I think the article, like 50 million people read and my TED Talk has been viewed 21 million times. I've been recognized in public three times in my life, and that was locally. And it was from people who said, oh, you're the girl that goes running in our neighborhood because I have these bright colored sneakers. And that's that's why people have recognized me. Nobody's ever said like, oh, you wrote that book or I saw your TEDx talk or anything like that. All I am known for locally is the girl with the orange sneakers. <laughs> yeah, whereas let's say even the decade before that, 
like yeah, let's say Tim Ferriss with the four hour work week. Yeah. Like he became super famous from the four hour work week and he did a good job converting that into a, an extremely successful podcast, but he tried many things. He's tried TV shows. He's tried, you know, venture capital and he kind of found his, his way to transfer his fame into a podcast. And, uh, but like if you wrote, if someone wrote the four hour work week now, maybe the book would be popular for a little while, but I doubt it would lead to the same kind of celebrity status that Tim had. I mean, I want, when he came out with his second book, the four hour body, I remember there was a, he was going to give a talk about it in New York. There, there was a line like eight blocks long, out, like almost a mile long outside the building where he was giving the talk. And I just don't see that happening anymore. I don't either, because I feel like we're spread out in so many different directions now. And again, the you know, 30 second TikTok video with a billion views doesn't mean anything to you. Ten minutes later, you won't remember you watched it, but it was popular. But yeah, I don't I don't I don't think we would do that anymore either. That's interesting to think about, though. Yeah. And so so people kind of go on these quests for fame because I guess you could monetize fame to some extent, like you get a better book advance or you get a to be an advisor to a company or whatever. But it's it's a lot, the nature of fame is a lot different. And I think it changes every decade. So I try to tell myself this just to try to get myself to enjoy life as opposed to always trying to get more followers on social media or whatever, these things that are really useless as opposed to just enjoying the moments I have. And which I wonder, sometimes are not related to fame at all. I wonder why fame is so important to to so many people like what are we hoping we'd get out of it obviously it's not leaving behind a legacy because everybody forgets who you are anyway so like what is it that we think we'll gain from being more famous uh i could tell you i think i think first off uh i think more people will like me mm. if i'm famous like like me personally so that i don't have to do as much personally for people to like me personally okay you know whether it's like a uh, uh, a woman, let's say when I was dating or, uh, just friends or whatever, that they would like me automatically because I was famous. So it was a very insecure kind of feeling like I was insecure about my own ability to get people to like me. So I needed the fame to kind of go before me to announce, Hey, here's a really likable person. So you should like him regardless of how he acts because he's famous. Okay. And so it's totally from a, a source of insecurity. And then again, and then also there's, uh, there is money-making opportunities when you're famous. Right. So that's, that's for sure. And, uh, but again, who, capturing fame and what the nature of fame is and, and again, how it changes every year, it's, it's harder to get universal fame. Like, you know, you might be, some people might know you because of a TV show on Netflix. Other people might not subscribe to Netflix and have never seen you. So it's it's a lot more uh, niche fame at this point, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And that, that's uh, two points that, that you made are interesting because definitely if you write books, publishers want to know how many social media followers you have. And if you're doing... You're, that's directly connected to your advance now. Right. The, the number of social media followers you have is 100% related to... And, and your prior book sales is, is... But let's say you didn't have prior book sales. Uh, your social media number of followers is 100% correlated to your advance. Right. And it didn't used to be that way because obviously we didn't have huge, when I wrote my first book, I don't think Instagram had even been invented yet. So it wasn't as big of a deal. And then I feel like we made this 
the pendulum swung so far that book deals were being handed out to people with these giant followings. And then we figured out, well, just because somebody's funny on TikTok doesn't mean we want to read their book. <laughs> but yeah. it hasn't gone away completely that publishers still definitely will ask or they, they when they market your books, they put how many followers you have on each social media channel um, as part of the marketing deal. Yeah, it's uh, it's too bad. Like, I think I, I've benefited from it somewhat because... I was active in social media at, at the right time. So I never got millions of followers, but I got enough followers that it was good for a good advance once or twice. But then I would feel bad if the, if the book sales don't match the follower numbers. So, right. you know, there's always pros and cons and, you know, and, and book advances are a weird thing because it's not like, let's say you get like, I'm going to make up just a number for a book advance. Let's it's neither big or low, but like a half a million dollar advance, it's a pretty big advance. Very few people get a six figure advances, but let's just say I'm, I'm making that number up completely. I've never had that advance. And, but $500,000 seems like a lot, but it's spread out over like four or five payments over years. And then it's heavily taxed and your agent takes 20%. So it, it's not really a, like a lot of money per year. And it doesn't really even if, even a, of an advance like $500,000 doesn't really directly pay for the time you spend on writing your book. Yeah, that's the funny part, right? I remember when I was writing my first book and I had no I didn't know what an author made. I had no idea how any of this worked and um was just very confused. I'm like, wait, it's an advance yet you get to keep it and if you only sell 12 copies then I guess you win, but if you sell a million copies then you might end up making some royalty. The entire thing is just quite confusing. And all these years later, I'm still sometimes confused by the whole process and international rights and sales and how all of those things happen. It gets kind of messy and complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is where I always go back and forth between traditional publishing and what I don't like to use the phrase self-publishing anymore, but maybe like self-directed publishing because the books that I've written and I've sold the most copies were self-published because I get to control the marketing. I control the pricing, I control the timing of when it's released and I, I control everything. And so in general, publishers, they're great, but they're dealing with so many different writers and their marketing departments might not do marketing exactly the way you would want them to. And, and, and again, they're busy with a lot of writers. So the main benefit of traditional publishing is the advance. And there are a few other benefits too. And I, and I've always worked well with the traditional publishers that I've worked with, but self-publishing has been so pleasurable for me. And I think you could make just as much money or more if you do it right with self-publishing. Yeah, I could see. I've never self-published, but I could see that there'd be some advantages to it too. And the freedom and flexibility that you have. Yeah. So, um, so what else, what, what other things have you enjoyed this, this year? Um, well, one thing I've learned, and I think I waited way too long to do it, was the the joy of at least buying yourself a pass to the airport lounges, both Delta and American. So that when I travel these days, it's made traveling a lot better. I travel a lot for speaking engagements, and uh, you know, I don't love to travel when you get stuck in airports and that sort of a thing. And I thought, why did it take me so long to get passes to both of these places. So now if I'm stuck in an airport, I can at least sit and work or do something on my phone or I'm not stuck standing around at a gate for four hours of my life because I would get impatient and, and angry that things weren't happening. But 
took all the stress out of traveling. So I have to say, for me, that was one of my biggest gifts to myself this year, and it's made travel travel life a million times better. <laughs> yeah, uh, how how many speaking engagements do you do? For a while, like at the beginning of the year, I was doing them like once a week, and that became a little too much because I was um, just on the road constantly. So I slowed it down over the summer, and I've done more virtual than anything, which has been fine. And then um, same with this fall, I've had a lot of virtual ones. I'm hearing from conferences that like because the price of plane tickets has gone up so much that a lot of people don't want to buy the $500 conference ticket plus pay for a hotel plus travel so they're doing a lot of things virtually which that's fine by money too because then I don't have to get on a plane and I have to travel anywhere and what do you what do you speak at like conferences about what um so like sometimes it's a women's conference or sometimes it's a sales conference sometimes it's private companies but I, for the most part, just speak about mental strength and mental health. And because of the pandemic, if anything good came out of it, I feel like companies are now much more willing to talk about mental health. And for a while, it was just like, oh, take care of yourselves, or we value mental health, so make sure you do yoga sometimes, or make sure you're um, taking care of, or you're using the three EAP benefits we have so you can talk to somebody, a stranger over the phone about your stress. But I feel like companies are now starting to realize like, yeah, that stuff's not enough. And now that people can switch workplaces, they're looking for certain things like flexibility and autonomy and uh, being able to take care of their mental health is more important. So I get to talk a lot about various mental health topics. And of course, some employers really want me to do it because they know that depression affects productivity or anxiety disorders are going to decrease the amount of time people are able to work. So from that standpoint, it makes sense to take care of people's mental health, but also from a human standpoint, like so many people are suffering right now. It just makes sense to have these conversations and invite people to get help if they need it and talk about the stuff they can be doing on an everyday basis to take care of themselves too. Do you have an, an agent for your speaking? I have a speaker's bureau that I work with. Um, are they pretty good? They're really good. The Montauk group, they're excellent at um, managing all of my speaking stuff for me, which makes my life much easier. Oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 every now and then I, I think I would like to do more public speaking, but I also just like sitting at home too. I don't know. I thought of you the other day cause I was watching the, um, the world cup and it was in Qatar and I remember and I'm such a great, uh, uh, soccer player. <laughs> yeah, that too. But I also <laughs> remembered that you had written this article once that you were offered, I think 60 grand to go to Qatar and you said, no, who would go there for $60,000? Yeah. I didn't want to go. <laughs> so I remember that. Like I didn't, I didn't even return their calls. They were like calling all the time. So finally just dropped them. So I guess I, now I would probably do it. But <laughs> but when I saw the world cup was there, I was like, who would want to go there? James wouldn't even go there for 60 grand. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised they let the world cup be there, but I guess they gave a lot of money. Right. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, any, any new podcasts you like? Um, so when it comes to podcasts, I often listen to true crime, <laughs> which I know is like the biggest genre Those are the most there. popular. Yeah. Those are the most popular podcasts. Right? Which is so bizarre that so many other people like it. But I have this um, fascination with like missing people. Like I always want to know where did they go? So I, one of the podcasts I listen to is called The Vanished. And it's just about that, about people who've disappeared and we have no idea where they are. And I always just want to know, like, and I hope that they just, you know, bump their head and they have amnesia and we'll find them someday. And some people have been found over the years. Sometimes they disappeared on purpose, either because it was like an unhealthy situation they were in or they just wanted to start a new life um, somewhere else. And other people disappeared because they were wanted and by the police or something. So they disappeared on purpose. And then other people we just never found. Yeah, I think most, unfortunately, 
like I'm always fast. Like if you have a lot of Facebook friends or a lot of people you follow on Facebook, you're constantly seeing, oh, so-and-so is missing. Have you seen them? Please tell us they're, you know, we're very concerned. It's our daughter, nephew, niece, friend's daughter or whatever. And I always see those. And then I Google, I get fascinated. I Google a few days later and see what happened. And unfortunately, it's usually uh, almost always bad news. Right. And it's really, and it's, and now that, you know, you, you would think it's a rare thing, but it's actually like, I'm seeing it all the time in my Facebook feeds. So like these things, people have to be careful out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's just it. And I think, um, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of them are homicides. Sometimes people, you know, their car went off an embankment and they're at the bottom of a river and it takes 30 years to find their car or something like that too. But yeah, yeah, definitely. And something about, I think, crime in general. And in, um, we like to watch. We're kind of fascinated with seeing it happen to other people. Or we want to know, like, like if somebody gets murdered, we want to know, like, well, what did they do wrong? Because I don't do that. And then I feel safe. So if that person sold drugs, for instance, or had a dangerous lifestyle, you think, well, that, th those things only happen to those kinds of people. They don't happen to people like me. And then you run into those episodes where somebody's just at home watching TV and gets murdered by a stranger. And then it raises our anxiety because we think, gosh, that could have been me. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you were to do a true crime po podcast, what would you do? Um, you know, since I do love mental health and I do love um, getting in the minds of people, like I would probably, you know, I'm kind of curious about that. Like when somebody's childhood then affects them in a way that they then go on to commit crime or something like that. So that kind of interests me, but I don't really want to talk about serial killers and that sort of a thing, but maybe just about missing people and what happened to them and what their family must go through, because I always think about that too. It's one thing when you lose somebody yeah. and you can grieve their loss, but like if your child went missing, how do you ever like just go on and live a normal life again? Like you're going to go out to parties and go to movies and have fun and you know, you can't keep looking for them forever. But on the other hand, how do you... And then every time you're walking down the street, are you still looking for him? I just, I can't imagine what that would be like. Jay, whenever we do kind of a semi-true crime thing, like let's say we talk about a financial scandal, do those podcasts, do do those episodes do better than other episodes? Oh yeah. People love a good true crime. Like like the 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 the, the FTX one and then, uh, you know, the hacker like one. When we did the, the, the Enron FTX one, yeah. did that one do percentage-wise like how much better? Did it do 10% better, 20% better? I wouldn't say like 10%, maybe like 5% better. Like it would just get a lot more feedback too. Oh yeah, we get a lot more feedback. Yeah, people want to weigh in. Yeah, that's how you know your the, the listener is engaging. You know, Maybe we should try to do more. Like what are some good financial crimes we could do? Could probably come up with a few. We could commit some financial <laughs> crimes and then talk about it. I had... um federal jury duty earlier in the year and i was like oh federal jury duty what do you get for that and i didn't get picked because they never pick social workers anyway but um it was a case about something about money laundering and things like that it was kind of interesting to see these things that still that still go on and things that i would have no idea of how people are laundering money and what they're doing and what their business really is even though they have this front for a business i don't know stuff's kind of fascinating to me too yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We've done a couple of episodes like that, and they've been really riveting in terms of the storytelling side. Uh, I have, I have one more recommendation here, which is oh, I really, I recently saw this. I haven't been watching a lot of comedy specials lately. I kind of retired from doing comedy, and then I, I didn't even want to watch comedy for a while. 
So, but I watched this one stand-up special a few weeks ago or recently uh, called Jew by Ari Shafir. And you don't have to be Jewish or not. Like my whole family, most of them was not Jewish. They were all laughing hysterically. It's on YouTube, Jew by Ari Shafir. And it's so funny. Like he was, he was good. He was being educated to be a rabbi and he quit an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and he quit all of that and became a comedian. And he just makes fun of the whole thing. <laughs> and it's just hilarious. Uh, it is so funny. And who doesn't like, need a laugh right now? So I think that's a good thing to About check Jews out. in particular. Sure. So, because no, because Kanye lately has been in the news so much right. on the opposite side of that. But like he'll, he'll take every story, like he'll take the story of Adam and, and Eve, for instance. Like, why did Adam need Eve? He, he discovers he needs Eve. And then that becomes a whole joke. And then God says, okay, we'll make a woman for you to have sex with and uh, but i'm gonna have to take one of your ribs and and he, i'm not doing it justice but adam says uh when did how about just from scratch not become an option anymore <laughs> right like you created everything else from scratch why do we now need a rib like are did you lose your powers or something like what's going on and it just everything was funny and then he, he goes on like jews Jews have this word to describe non-Jews called uh, goys. And he he descri- and he basically says the word goy if, is a derogatory word. It's it's an insult if you're called a goy. And he says what's fascinating about it, though, is it's the most inclusive derogatory word possible. I mean, it basically means it has nothing to do with, like, race or color or anything else. It's just non-Jew. So, like, it's one-tenth of one percent of the planet as a word, a derogatory word for everybody else on the planet. And so he just makes everything about Judaism funny. Interesting. Is, All right. I'll put yeah. that on my list of things to check out then. <laughs> yes. It's, it's on YouTube. Okay. And the easy to remember called, called Jew. All right. Uh, and I guess those are like my main recommendations. Uh, I have to expose myself to more things other than like podcast related material. Yeah, I know. As I talked to you, I was like, wow, I've spent a lot of time in the year writing and doing podcasts and doing work-related things. But yeah, I should. And I do a lot. The things that I already enjoyed, I keep doing, but exploring new things should probably be on my list for things to do next year. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I've, I'm specifically not exploring new things. Like I'm trying <laughs> really hard to keep up with my writing, which is not as... And also I've been trying really hard to be once again, you know, above the ranking of chess master. And it's been taking a much longer time than I would like. So I'm starting to think I actually am aging and that's affecting me. Ah, okay. You, you weren't immune no. to that thing either. <laughs> no, I wasn't immune to aging and I thought I was, but I think, I think that's what I'm battling too. I run a timed mile every day and for a long time I got faster and faster and faster. And now I've reached this plateau and I think, does that mean I'm, I'm now not able to outrun my age anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah, you have to find other ways to find satisfaction with life as you age because you the things that you were great in when you were in your 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever, you, just some things decline. And you know, let's say you were a business success because you worked 100 hours a week at business and you know, you were networking all the time and you just don't feel like doing that at, at, at a certain age. So you have to kind of move more into a, like to, to find satisfaction from business, for instance, yeah, you have to move more into like a mentorship type of role or, 
the same thing might be true for writing. Like instead of writing like these, you know, uh, Brat Pack kind of stories, like oh, partying in New York City and relationships, and this happens and that happens. It's a different type of writing that that occurs, you know, as you get older. I don't know. Just everything changes as you get more mature, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully, right. I don't know if maturity changes. It Do might get worse. Gain more wisdom and shift our focus. You're supposed to gain wisdom, but I don't know if that actually happens. I know, right? <laughs> but uh, so when when's the next book coming out? The workbook's coming out early in the year. Yeah, the workbook comes out February 28th, and that'll be the 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do workbook. And then if all goes according to plan, that uh, my couple's book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do, will come out at the end of next year, but it's not quite written yet. And I don't know if you heard, most of HarperCollins is on strike these days. So hopefully- the, Oh, I didn't know that. Hopefully the employee strike will end. My editor's on strike. So depending on when- Who's your editor? Uh, Maddie and like Lisa Sharkey and Maddie Polari are working on the next book. But um, most, I think most of the editorial team is on strike at the moment. Yeah, I don't know. HarperCollins was my last publisher. Right. I published a book of mine last year. But, uh, well, good luck. I'm really looking forward to the 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. Thank that you. That is going to be my Bible for that entire month that you published that book. Thank you. It's, so, it's fun to write. <laughs> and thanks for coming on the podcast. Once again, you're, you're, you're one of the most regular visitors on this podcast. Well, it's good to be back. Good to see you. And uh, Jay, thank you also for participating oh, in this in thank small you. ways. It's a very small way. <laughs> All right. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.